uh, nurses and doctors often were enslaved. And there were uh, also many cases in which a wealthy patron would entrust the management of his entire estate over to one of his servants. And so they then had the responsibility of managing that estate and taking care as a steward of the things which had been entrusted within his hands. So when we read about servanthood, when we read about slavery in the New Testament, the servitude that went on in the first century world, we have to understand first and foremost that it was very, very different than that practice which took place in our own country and in other parts of the world in different times in history. Not the same thing at all. Not based on skin color, not based on ethnicity, and many items were very, very different. However, that would not fairly capture the whole story. Because as you very well know, there are passages in your New Testament, like in Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3 and 4, and even 1 Peter chapter 2, where the Bible will talk about masters and servants, but it will talk about servants who serve under masters who are hostile toward them, who mistreat them. And so the sad truth of the matter is that although there was Roman legislation regulating the treatment of those who were in servitude, not everyone followed that legislation. Not everyone followed the law. And so what did Christianity and what did the gospel do in that scenario? Here's the answer. The gospel changed everything. When we study slavery in the New Testament, when we study what Christianity had to do with slavery, and I'm not talking about what people who have claimed to be Christians throughout the years have done with it. I'm talking about what the Bible actually says about it. What we have to recognize is that the gospel changed everything and that it essentially legislated slavery out of existence. And the reason is because it fundamentally transformed the relationship between the servant and between the master and between everyone else for that matter. It's the same principle that we saw last week when we were looking at Ephesians chapter 5. And we have this reciprocity that exists between the husband and the wife in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and following. The wife is to submit to her husband, but the husband is to love his wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church. There's a reciprocity there. Try as you may, go back and read as many uh, copies of early first century literature that you can get your hands on and you will not find any literature that describes in the first century world that same level of service and sacrifice and reciprocity between a husband and a wife that the New Testament commanded to exist between the two. The gospel changed the relationship of a husband and a wife. But the gospel also changed the relationship of a master and a servant. And what it did is it transformed that relationship and to, uh, to the point that that relationship became not so much master and servant, but it became in some cases brother and brother, and in every case, if it is applied, employer and employee. Let's look at some passages. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. It's the conclusion of four arguments that the Apostle Paul will make to support his 
purpose statement in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, that we are not justified by the works of the law, but rather we are justified through an obedient faith in Christ Jesus. He makes some arguments from experience in the first few verses of Galatians chapter 3. He makes some arguments based on Scripture. He makes some arguments based upon the irrevocable nature of the promise or the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then he makes an argument from slavery to sonship. And the culminating factor of all of this is Galatians 3, verse 26 through 29. And here's what he says. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul is writing uh, in a situation in which Judaizing doctrine is at the forefront. Judaizing doctrine, meaning that doctrine according to Acts 15 and verse 1, which took parts of the law of Moses, combined them with with the, the gospel, and then bound it on people. And Paul in Galatians chapter 1 argues that that's not just another version of the gospel of Christ, that's a perversion. It's another gospel altogether, and it's to be rejected. But see, here's the problem. There were those of the Jewish mindset who still saw this distinction between Jew and Gentile. And in their mind, Jew is still better than Gentile. And so for Gentile to come and occupy the same level as Jew, then the Gentiles are going to have to take part of the Jewish law and they're going to have to bind themselves to it. And then there will be equality. And Paul says, no, that's not true. Equality is found in Christ and in the, and in the cross and in the gospel. And so in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3, 26 and following, Jew or non-Jew doesn't matter. Male or female doesn't matter. Rich or poor, that doesn't matter. Slave or free, that doesn't matter either. Because all are one in Christ Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Philemon and let's look at some of those passages that Brett read for us just a moment ago. It's a fascinating book because it's a letter, of course. And this particular letter is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to Philemon because of a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus was Philemon's servant. He was Philemon's slave. And yet Philemon was a member of the church of Christ. Onesimus ran away from his master and upon running away, he came into contact with the apostle Paul while he was in Rome. Paul taught him the gospel and he converted him. He obeyed the gospel and so Paul sent him back to Philemon with this letter in hand. And we're not going to take the time to read the whole book. It's not long. You can read it this afternoon in in a few minutes. But what I want to do quickly is I want to notice what Paul says as he describes, first of all, Onesimus, and then second of all, what he says about Philemon's responsibility toward him, and what that tells us, again, about how the gospel changed everything. What does Paul say about Onesimus? Look at verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you for my son, my son Onesimus. Paul describes him as his son. Look at verse 12. I am sending him back. You may therefore receive him. That is my own heart. 
Paul describes this man as my own heart. Look at verse 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. He is my son, Onesimus. He is my own heart, and he is my beloved brother. What does that tell you that the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, was a Roman citizen and a free Roman citizen, what was his view of this man who was a servant of Philemon? What was his view of him? He viewed him with a great deal of love, with a great deal of respect and appreciation. He viewed him as an equal because he was a brother in Christ. He even goes on and says in verse 17 and 18, if you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. Looking now at Philemon's responsibility. Philemon's responsibility upon Onesimus' return was to receive him as a brother. Paul says in verse 15, For perhaps he departed from you for a while, a little while for this purpose, so that you might receive him forever. Not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. A beloved brother especially to me. He says, receive him as you would me. In other words, receive him in your house with the same level of respect and with the same level of hospitality that you would extend to me if I came to your house. And if in anything he has wronged you or owes anything, you put that to my account and I will pay. What does it mean that Philemon was to receive Onesimus as a brother? That meant that he had the moral obligation to love him, 1 John 4 and verse 7. That meant that he had the moral obligation to forgive him, Ephesians 4 and verse 32, and to extend to him all of the blessings of fellowship and brotherhood in Christ Jesus. You see, although Onesimus was the servant of Philemon, yet Philemon and Onesimus are equals. And they are equals because of the gospel and because of the blood of Christ and because of what Christ did on the cross. Remember Galatians 3, there is neither male nor female, there is neither slave nor free, all are one in Christ Jesus. The cross is the great equalizer. Now look at some other passages that flesh this out even further. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. Notice in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 9, as we again see this principle of reciprocity, we have the responsibility of the servant and the master. They both have responsibilities one to another. Ephesians 6 and verse 5 says, Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing service to the, uh, as to the Lord and uh, not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he'll receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Now, what is Paul described as the responsibility of the servant to the master? The servant is to serve, and he is to do so in sincerity of heart. He is to do so with respect. He is to do so, he is to serve his master in the same way as he would serve Christ. With the knowledge, verse number 8, that the Lord is going to dole out good... To all people, look at the end of verse 8, whether what? Whether slave or free. Do you remember 
Last Sunday night, we talked about judgment. And in Romans chapter 2, the apostle Paul says, you Jews are hypocritical in your judgment, but who's not? God. God is not hypocritical in his judgment. And he says that God will render to every man according to his what? According to his skin? No. According to his ethnicity? No. According to his social status? No, not that either. According to his deeds. According to his works. Now, what's the responsibility of the master to the servant? Look at verse 9. You masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master is also in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Masters, do the same things to them. Well, what are the same things? How about goodwill, verse number 7? How about knowing whatever anyone does, he'll receive the same from the Lord, verse number 8. How about sincerity and service and respect, verse number 5. You see, the servant has the responsibility to serve his master, but the master has the responsibility to treat his servant in a way that is fair and in a way that is comprised of dignity. He is to recognize what Paul recognized about Onesimus as he spells it out in the book of Philemon. Notice the reciprocity. It's the same thing we saw in Ephesians chapter 5 with husbands and wives. Another passage, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22. On down through chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul says, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The language is similar to Ephesians chapter 6. Servants have a responsibility to serve and to work, but masters have a responsibility to understand, just like, remember last week, husbands have a responsibility to understand that they're not the end of the authority chain. They serve Christ. We all serve Christ. Paul says, masters know that you have a master. You have a responsibility to treat your servants well with respect and in kindness, and the reason is because you're going to have to answer for how you treat them. You see how the gospel changes everything? You see how the gospel fundamentally transforms the relationship? It is no longer appropriate, according to the teaching of the New Testament, for a person who lives in the first century world to have a servant and to treat him in an inappropriate way. But rather, he is to treat him with love and with respect and with dignity, and he is to be fair to him. This relationship is changed. It's no longer a slave and a, and a master. It becomes effectively, as we know it today, an employee and an employer. But more importantly, it becomes a human and another human, a person and a person. It becomes two people for whom Christ has died and for whom the, and for whom the cross destroys all social boundaries and all social classes and puts everyone on level ground. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12? It's what we call the golden rule. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that principle applies in every single relationship. It even applies in the relationship of servant and master. It is unfortunate 
that throughout history, some have gone to the Bible and have have looked to some of these passages that we've looked at this morning and have tried to make some sort of justifiable claim that it's okay to practice uh, to practice a slavery. Those things that happened in our country so many years ago and throughout the world and those who tried to justify those with the teachings of New Testament Christianity, just because they quoted a passage to prove it doesn't mean that they quoted the passage correctly. All that it did is it showed that they had no idea what they were saying. They were misusing the scripture. Because what the Bible teaches is that all people stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross and the gospel is for everybody. That's exemplified in so many different ways. Do you remember Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4? All social expectations are violated in that particular occasion. You have a Jewish man speaking as an equal with a woman. That's a social no-no. You have a Jew speaking as an equal with a Samaritan. That's an even bigger social uh, faux pas. And yet Jesus throws it all out the door because those things don't matter. In Matthew chapter 28, we have the Great Commission. And you remember that Jesus said, you're to go and you're to preach the gospel to all nations. To every creature, Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, the gospel was not intended to be just for a certain group or class or kind of people. It's for everybody. And you remember James chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. James has an entire section in the first part of the second chapter in which he deals with partiality. Prejudice, racism, as we'll call it. James talks about an occasion in which there is a person that comes into the church building, into the worship assembly, and he is wealthy and he is of high esteem and he looks good and probably smells good, and everybody falls at his feet and they give him the place of honor. But then there's a person who comes in and he's poor and he's raggedy and he probably doesn't smell very good and everyone raises an eyebrow and they totally ignore him and they push him to the side because everybody's interested in the other guy. And James calls this partiality and he condemns it. It is said that Gandhi on one occasion remarked that he thought highly of Christ but he didn't think so highly of Christians. And the reason for his statement allegedly is because of the practice of prejudice. Because he saw the hypocrisy in people who claimed to be following Christ Jesus, but who practiced partiality and who uh, treated other people in a way that was inappropriate. They failed to love their neighbors themselves. You remember that, Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 to 39. The lawyer came to Jesus and tempted him and asked him, Master, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. The second is likened to it. That means it carries equal weight. And it is, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's your neighbor? Of course, you remember the parable of the um, Good Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And yet in this parable, we have a Jewish man who is beaten and left on the road for dead, and a priest and a Levite come and they pass by. These are the religious, this is the religious group of the day. They knew the law and their obligation. They should have helped him, but they didn't. They passed on by. And then here comes the Samaritan. We call him the good Samaritan. And he loads the man up on his animal, and he takes him to an inn, and he sees that he's taken care of, and he even goes the extra mile. Because he tells the innkeeper, look, if if there's more charge that's involved here, you let me know and I'll come back and I'll pay it. Just take care of him and I'll take care of the rest. 
And Jesus asked the question, which one of these was neighbor to the man that was beaten? And the answer, of course, was obvious. It was the Samaritan. They had to admit such. Jesus will simply just say, then go and do likewise. Go and do the same. And the application, I think, is quite clear. Does Christianity endorse endorse slavery? No. Not in the way that most people mean it when they bring it up. It is true that slavery is mentioned in the New Testament. But it is also true that it is very, very, very different from the image that comes to our mind when we, th- when we talk about slavery in our current climate and in our, our current time. Very different. But it is also true that even in those cases in which people violated Roman law and in which people who were masters treated their servants, their slaves, in a terrible way, that the gospel of Jesus Christ... The gospel of Jesus Christ took that relationship and it completely transformed it. It transformed it in such a way that it it essentially did away with the institution. Because now a master has to treat a servant not as property but as an equal. A master has to treat a servant not as an inferior but really as an employee whom he owes goodness toward and whom he owes fairness and whom he is to treat as a fellow human being that's what the gospel does the gospel had the answer for all of those social problems in the first century and the gospel has the answer for all of those social problems even now we've talked about these big questions over the last month or so there are several others that we could talk about but we're going to end our series here But if there's one thing, if there's one point that I I would want to drive home, maybe more than any other point that applies to every single one of these subjects that we've looked at, whether or not it's Christianity being the only true religion or what the Bible actually has to say about women and about the family and about human sexuality or any of the other things we've discussed about slavery, whatever it is, The one point that we should realize above all of this is that, and I know this sounds simple, but it's very true and actually quite profound if you stop and think about the application. The Bible has the answers. And here's the struggle that we have, and I say we because I'm I'm including myself here. The struggle is that we live in this great country and we enjoy these great freedoms and we are, we're very well educated. We can read literature from practically every society that's lived and existed in the known world. We can read different philosophies and laws. And we can find self-help books. And we can even listen to and engage ourselves in po- political rhetoric and, and listen to politicians claim to have answers to the very problems that we've been talking about over the last month. They don't have the answers. They've never had the answers, and they never will. And neither do any of the other philosophies or human institutions that have been created. You can go to the library uh, at the, the University of Texas Library, or the Library of Congress for that matter, and you can check out every book and read every known copy of every piece of paper ever written that addresses these major societal problems And you'll never find the answer. 
Because God is the only one who has it. The New Testament, the Bible, the gospel, that's where these answers are found. And we're the people of God. That means more than anyone else, we have to recognize that and we have to apply it and we have to live like we recognize it and we apply it. And we have to teach it to our children and to our grandchildren and to anyone else who will listen. Jesus said we're to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. You remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and following? What better way to be light and to be salt than to try and to attack the societal problems that currently are fuming in our world, not in the way that anyone else is attacking them, but rather with a thus saith the Lord. Here's what the Bible says about it. Here's what Christ said about it. And if we'll actually apply it and understand it correctly, it will make a difference. That's how we can be salt and light. The world has a lot of big questions about Christianity. But the question that I want to ask you this morning is, are you ready to answer them? Have you studied your Bible to the point where you can deal with some of these things? If not, why not? That's our challenge. We need to know who we are. We need to know what we believe and practice and why. And we need to be able to articulate that to anyone who will ask. Every last one of us. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation now. And it may be that there's someone here who has a desire to respond. Maybe to become a Christian. Maybe you are a Christian this morning. And as you think about your life and uh, the way that, it's, that you're living it, maybe you can see that there are some things that are off. And you have a desire to, to make some changes. Can we help you to do that? This morning, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Or do you, are you willing to repent of your sins and confess your faith in Christ and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins so that God can add you to the church? Are you ready to become a Christian? If you are, let us help you. Come forward and let your need be known while we stand and sing.